Rick Halperin knows that overcoming Lombardo's long-standing reputation as a top boss of Chicago's outfit will be his major challenge in the upcoming trial based on the FBI's Operation Family Secrets. Lombardo was one of 14 Windy City Mafia figures charged with a vast assortment of serious crimes, including 18 unsolved murders. More than a 1,000 murders have been attributed to the Chicago outfit over the years. Fewer than 20 have been solved. This massive indictment represents the most serious assault on the mob since Capone was put away. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade, and we hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode with undercover ATF agent Lou Velozzi. What a heck of a story that man had. Indeed, I hope everybody went out and bought his book to try to get a little bit more detail because there's a lot more, as we say, folks, there's always a lot more in the book. I know in school, a lot of us maybe wanted to try to watch the movie and get away with it. But it's better to read the book because you got a whole lot more information in the book. So what he dropped on our podcast is he was so gracious enough to come over to Crime Entertainment and share his story. Only scratch the surface. So go out and check out that book, Storefront Sting. If you missed it, it's in our show notes on the YouTube and on our Facebook and Instagram posts as well. Now, this week, we have a doozy lined up, ladies and gentlemen. We have... A former Chicago outfit associate, Chuck Maselli. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with organized crime and the mob, they call the mob from Chicago the outfit. Now, the outfit had a lot of major players back in the day from Sam Giancana, Joey the Clown Lombardo, Tony Spilotra, Tony Accarta. I mean, and that's only just a few. I mean, there's, there's many more. Um, a lot of them were tied into the movie Casino, if any of our listeners have seen that, which had Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro in there. Uh, so a lot of stuff compacted in this episode, but the guy that's sitting down with us today has some key information that he tried to bring to the courts that could have possibly kept Joey Lombardo, maybe not out of prison because he was still going to jail for a lot of other stuff, but could have kept the murder off the books for him at least. And this evidence was in fact buried. Now Chuck actually sent me the evidence of where he, you know, documented proof that he sent me via email and it proved that he was trying to get in there and talk to the judge and say his piece because he was actually there today. The day a murder was committed on a guy by the name of Danny Seifert. Now we're actually going to have Danny's son, Joey on the show here coming up soon to give his accounts of you know, what he thinks happened that day and, you know, kind of his take on things. He also has a YouTube channel as well. You guys can go check that out. It's Joey's Social Club. But we're going to get into it here with Charles because he's got a lot to say. He's got a lot of information that I think a lot of people don't have. And, you know, not everybody agrees with some of the things he says. A former guest of ours, Red Wamet, has some things to say to go against Chuck. Now, we actually may have... A dual interview with those two guys coming up midweek after we do this episode here with Chuck. But before we get too much into that, let's go ahead and get this one out of the way with Chuck Maselli here on Crime 
and entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. Now, we have here today a very interesting guest that's going to help shed some light on a few things involving the Chicago outfit. Uh, he's got quite a story, and, you know, I'm not going to say unlike some, but he's one of the few that provides a lot of documentation to back up a lot of his stories, and he sent me quite a bit of stuff through email, and we're going to get into that today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Chuck Maselli. Chuck, how you doing, my friend? Hey, how you doing, Wade? I'm, I'm doing great, brother. I'm glad to be on your show. It's an honor. Well, I'm glad to have you. I've been wanting to get you on here for a minute. I know you had a little uh, health bout there. I'm glad you're through that and able to come on and, and share your story with us today. Um, for those of our listeners that might not be too familiar with who you are, before we get into a lot of the, you know, the deep dive into this, let's kind of just give them a backstory a little bit, tell them who you are, where you come up and kind of how you got involved in the outfit. Like, did you see them at an early age and, and that type of thing? Yeah. Like five minutes after I was born. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. <laughs> well, as soon as I met dad, you know, it was all, it was all over with, you know, the story was kind of written. Right. Um, I grew up in Elmwood park and on the Northwest side of Chicago, uh, Elmwood park back in the day, 60s, 70s, 80s was pretty much the Italian enclave. Mm -hmm. um, if you were outfit, if you were a city worker, if you were Italian, German, Polish, uh, not so much Irish, uh, you were living on the northwest side. You know, a lot of the Irish were down in Br Bridgeport where Mayor Daly, both Mayor Daly's, in fact, were from. Uh, and that's that name speaks for itself. Uh and there was some Italian enclaves down in Chinatown and, you know, down on Grand and Ogden and stuff, which I ended up becoming very close to someone that ran the Grand and Ogden crew, which has been well publicized already, Joseph Lombardo. Um, where do I start with my life? Um, my parents had a very rocky marriage. Uh, I don't I don't sugarcoat this. I'm writing a book. And it's not like I hold anything back. My dad was a 27-year-old guy, just come out of the Army, didn't really want a wife and kid. He got married because back then that was the thing to do when you got somebody pregnant. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to be with his friends and in the street and around the outfit guys, and my mom just wasn't having it. Long story short, um, to explain how, how my involvement at such an early age into the outfit came to be, um, we were living in a building in uh, Elmwood Park, Illinois, uh, and it was a one, one of the few at that time major high-rises in Elmwood Park. It was called Autumn Terrace back then, and I had a very unfortunate circumstance um, my dad wasn't being very kind to my mom and he, he had a very nasty side to him. My mother attempted suicide. Um, she had cut wow. her wrists up both ways five or six times. And back in those days, as I've said in other interviews, and it's been investigated and verified and all this kind of stuff, this was in the seventies. Um, you could call your kid home from school back then and, for whatever my mother's thought process was, she had called the school and they sent me home in a cab. And I walked into the apartment, obviously saw my mother not in good condition. 
And I ran out screaming into the hall like any seven or eight year old would have done. And I ran slam into the arms of Joe Lombardo, a.k.a. Joey the Clown Lombardo, a.k.a. Lumpy, a.k.a. at that time, one of the capos that he organized, you know, outfit in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, That is my first cognizant relationship that grew um, with Lumpy. Um, from that point on, he wasn't, you know, let's take Godfather and Casino and all that to the side. In every essence of the word, he was my Godfather. Mm-hmm. He didn't baptize me, um, but he overwatched me. Right. He overwatched my career in politics. He overwatched my upbringing with my father to a certain degree. Um, he helped my mom tremendously. There was never any inappropriate stuff between them. He, he looked at my mom like a daughter, um, and I ended up getting a bond to him, just like, you know, my friends, the Seaford brothers, you know, even though it's alleged that Joey murdered their father or was involved in it, um, until recently, they didn't know the truth. Joe and Nick will both tell you, and I think you may be interviewing them in the near future. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Um they grew up calling him Uncle Joe. Right. You know, uh, to this day, Nick and Joey both have an out. They have a lot of confused, mixed up emotions in their heart about him. We've put a lot of that to sleep over the last six months. Mm-hmm. Um, as I got older and went through grade school and high school and stuff, you know, I was the kid with the big ears, the buck teeth, the funny clothes from Kmart because my family wasn't rich. And I had an uncle that was very heavily involved in organized crime as an associate. His name was Tom Schreiber. And there had come a time when I was still in school that my mother had gotten a job that, by the way, Joe got her. And one day Tom got called upon to do something. That was September 27, 74, the day that Joey Seifert's father was executed. My uncle not to disparage his memory because I love him dearly, but people don't know the whole story with him. At 15, he was struck by a car and thrown 65 feet in the air. They had a shock, literally half of his brain back into working. Mm, wow. And this is a man that not only graduated from three police academies, okay, and became a Cook County deputy sheriff, Cook County forest reserve policeman, and an enforcer for the mob uh, that couldn't even read and write very well. Mm. And, you know, you have to understand and for your viewers, and I'm sure your viewers and your genre understand that you can take New York, you can take LA, you can take Dallas, you can take New Orleans, you can take Florida and wipe those off the map. When it comes to Chicago, Chicago is its own thing. Mm-hmm. We don't operate. And we've never operated or been allowed to operate the way any other outfit organizations have run. And I attribute that. And I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I attribute the longevity that they had here in Chicago to one fact. It's always been very traditional and old school here. Mm-hmm. We didn't hang out on the corner with gold chains and you know, uh, $5,000 suits walking up with five bodyguards around us. Um, it just wasn't done that way. The guys in the outfit in Chicago 
or jeans, a sweatshirt like you're wearing, flannel shirt, had city jobs, and went to work every day. Uh, they ran their businesses, of course. They did the things that they did. So as me growing up as a kid, and Joe Seifert, Nick Seifert will tell you the same thing, we didn't see him as, oh, my God, this is Tony Accardo, or, oh, my God, this is Sam Giancana, or this is Anthony Spilatro, or, or, or you know, was, hey, that's Cousin Tony, that's Uncle Jimmy, you know, uh, he works for the sewer department, you know. It, it was a different culture for us. So, you know, mom come, uh, dad comes home and he's got three new dresses for mom that fell off the back of a truck, you know, <laughs> it's just... It was a way of life, I guess. That's the best way to put it. Right. Um, after that instance where Joe saved my mother's life, he basically told my father, and I didn't know this till many years later, if he ever did what he was doing to my mother again, Joe would put him in a trunk. Mm. And at that time in 74, 75, 76, Joe Lombardo telling you that would be about the equivalent of Jesus Christ coming down saying he's sending you to hell because yeah your ticket was paid for. Right. Uh, after that, my mom didn't have many problems out of my dad with his own friends, um, was affiliated very heavily with certain people. I won't mention because some of them are still alive. Um, and when I got older, I didn't want to live at home. I came from a dysfunctional second marriage, which my stepfather is being a 55-year-old man now looking back, I think he was one of the greatest men I ever met. Growing up is wondering where dad's at, you know, uh, I gave that poor guy hell. I moved out at 17, and I had a choice. We'll either go in the Army or get a job. So we tried the Army thing. My mother got cancer in her breast, and I had to come home, and I started in politics. And you would not believe, and your viewers may or may not know, um, politics and the mob go hand in hand in Chicago. Oh yeah, you know you don't get a job. You don't get a job unless you're connected. Mm -hmm. You know they, they. It was always, especially like the Godfather, and I know it's coming up on the 50th anniversary. I don't think Martin Scorsese, um, Mario Puzo, or any of them really understood the influence that it had because like my dad worked for the city of Chicago. Uh, if you got promotion to a boss, they called that getting made, mm -hmm. you know, they made, it made such an impact on the, the Italian community in Chicago. Uh, if you wanted a special license plate on your car, you had to have, now you can go get any plate you want just by applying to the secretary of state mm -hmm. in the seventies and eighties. If you had a three letter initial plate, you practically knew the governor, you know, wow. and who held the, who held the strings to the governor, Tony Accardo, Jackie Cerrone, uh, Joey Iupa, more than anybody, Sam Giancana. There's two enclaves in Chicago on the Northwest side. You have Elmwood park and there was a predominant where I'm from was a predominantly very, heavily populated with mob associates, mob capos, and guys that were kind of like wannabes. Then you had Washington, D.C. of the mob, River Forest. Mm -hmm. 
all the bosses live there. Uh, you know, uh, between River Forest and Oak Park, Illinois, which were adjoining towns with Elmwood Park, you had a four-corner intersection at Harlem and North where it was Chicago, Oak Park, River Forest, and Elmwood Park. And at those four corners, believe it or not, Wade, there was a restaurant back in the day called the Golden Bear. Mm-hmm. Now, other guests that you've had, like Red Wamet and some other people, I, I'm sure Red will remember, Golden Bear on Saturday and Sunday, you almost had to have an invitation to walk in the door. If you weren't connected, you didn't know the right people, you got stares when you walked in there. You know, and, and Joey and I laugh about it because us as kids growing up in there, you know, you put your best clothes on to go to breakfast on Saturday or Sunday, you got out of line, you caught a crack. You might not have caught a crack from one person, you caught from four or five guys. It was, you know, like, Hey, what the hell's the matter with you? Um, so I experienced and I lived that my whole life. When I got old enough, I decided I had a crazy idea. My first job was with the clerk at the circuit court of Cook County. And I was a deputy clerk and my uncle Tom was a deputy sheriff. And I had already seen and done and knew from growing up what the outfit was all about. Mm-hmm. And I went to my mom and I said, I don't want to work in the court system. I don't want to be an attorney. I want to be a cop. And at that time, my dad was the one that had more influence in his friends with getting me into the sheriff's department. That was how I got so heavily tied into organized crime, because in Chicago, I don't know what they call it where you're from. But in Chicago, in Alderman, there's 50 wards in the city of Chicago. Right. They call them aldermen uh, down there, yeah. Right. And in in those 50 wards, those aldermen are like miniature gods. Right. They they control everything. Uh, you Back in the day, if you did a, one, the biggest favor you could do for somebody back in the 80s was bring them, believe it or not, a 55-gallon drum garbage can. You were, a, I don't know, do you have like... Uh, language restrictions on this no no absolutely not okay if you brought somebody a 55 gallon garbage can you were a fucking king (laughs) if somebody could call you up and you were a precinct captain and they needed a garbage can and you brought them two garbage cans oh my god you had the whole family voting for you you know (laughs) uh if you could cut down a tree or fix a pothole you know they might as well you know they're gonna put saint saint charles up on the wall um (laughs) You you got that affiliation. Well, the aldermen, with all the power and strength they had, the guys that pulled their strings were the guys that ran the outfit. Right. So when it come down to really doing anything, you got an alderman, like certain aldermen, and many have been indicted. In fact, there's a couple under indictment here right now, a couple of the old school guys, one that's very near and dear to my heart, and I hope he beats the case, um, Alderman Burke because he's probably one of the best men I've ever met in my life. Um, Known his wife all my life. I grew up in, my mother worked in the courts with her, uh, Justice Ann Burke. But you have to understand, with all the power they had, who puts them in office? And that's where we get to. I could go to the alderman to get my county job, but if I didn't have somebody that was putting that alderman in his seat with votes, and could pick up the phone and call the unions and could call uh, the plumbers union or, or, you know, different uh, large corporations 
that the outfit had its hands in back then, like the restaurant industry and the movie industry and all that. Mm-hmm. I don't care if they write a hundred thousand books and make 10 million movies. John Kennedy would have never been president if it wasn't for Sam Giancana. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've talked about that on numerous podcasts. I mean, him getting that vote for Chicago, that was a big deciding vote for Illinois. That, that was the, the, really the sway that got JFK in there. And but, to, to your point of what you were just talking about, much like the mob was trying to do with JFK to get them in there to try to maybe alleviate or take away some of the pressure that they were putting on them, which it, it wound up having the exact opposite effect. But the, the outfit guys would put these aldermans in these positions because they knew they could go to them and get favors. Like you said, you go up and ask for a job. Hey, he's got a job. So you put these guys in the right positions to be able to make it easier for your people to operate and you do favors. And it's always a one hand wash or scratches the other back, you know, the old saying. Um, that's the that's the whole point and why they were doing it. But, yeah, I absolutely agree. If, if Momo, Sam Giancana hadn't have done what he'd done, John F. Kennedy probably would not have got the presidency. And just to expand a little bit on what you said, even though he got the Illinois vote, you got to understand at the time that Kennedy was elected, Momo's reach was so far coast to coast from Canada to Cuba. Mm -hmm. Teamsters, uh, liquor distributors, waiters union, movie house unions, every union there was, we, I shouldn't say we, Momo had control over to one degree, or he knew someone, or Lucky, Charlie Luciano, or the guys that were involved, you know, in in the New York families. Do you think in 19, I think, and I don't remember the year, but in 55, do you think that all this was a coincidence, Appalachia? Oh, no. Remember when they all got caught running in the woods? Yeah. Okay. It was a stupid move that 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 meeting was supposed to happen in Chicago. And for whatever reason, it didn't. But when the commission sat down back then and it wasn't John F. Kennedy, you know, no disrespect to President Kennedy. But do you understand it wasn't JFK that got him put into presidency? It was his dad, Joe. Right. Yeah, Joe was a bootlegger from back in the day, too. I mean, he had these mob ties way before those guys, and that's who reached out and I think set all this in motion to get him oh, in the did. present seat. Well, well, and what he also got his son killed, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because here's the deal the one thing that nobody under a lot of your viewers may not understand outside of Chicago, there's three main rules. When you're in the outfit, you don't lie to the boss. You don't steal from the boss and you don't embarrass the boss. Mm-hmm. Whoever the boss is, those three things will get you killed really quick. And you got to understand Joe Kennedy goes to Sam and says, I need your help. And I need your help from Frank Sinatra. Now my close personal friend, and he's a distant relation to me. Cousin Carl Giancana, Carl Mano, but he goes, he uses Giancana for, you know, publicity purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ran the mob museum that's closed now in Vegas for a while and stuff. Um, you know, we'll even come on a show and tell you, and we've been on Joe Seifert's show. Um, 
Joe Kennedy comes to Sam and said, I need help from Frank Sinatra. Momo goes to Sinatra. Sinatra gets all of his movie people. And the one little tiny thing that Sinatra asked for is I, I want the president to come to my home. I, once, once JFK is made president, I'd like him to honor me by coming to my home in appreciation. Respect used to be everything. Mm-hmm. What did them dumb sons of bitches do? Sinatra builds a heliport for Air for, uh, for Marine One. And they tell him, Abafungu, go fuck yourself. <laughs> we ain't coming. And then on top of it, even after they snubbed Frank like that, who, who Momo went to for a favor, all the stories about Marilyn Monroe, yeah, that's all a bunch of happy horse shit because I grew up at certain people's knees. I know the truth. They were told one thing. After Sam's second wife passed away, he fell in love with a woman named Phyllis McGuire from the McGuire sisters. McGuire sisters. Yep. The Kennedys were told, stay the fuck away from Phyllis. And they didn't. I don't care about the election. I don't care about the Bay of Pigs. I don't care about nothing. I know Momo died when I was little, but I have personal family and my grandfather and my stepfather who actually worked in the man's home and knew him very, very well. That was what fucking iced the cake. Mm -hmm. When they crossed that threshold and things happened between Phyllis and the Kennedy boys and not just one, but both of them, their ticket was punched. And whether it was CIA involved in the grassy knoll and whoever Sam used or manipulated or co-conspired with, I guarantee you that order came out of Sam Giancana's mouth. Do what you got to do because he was very funny about certain things. And once he laid something down to be law, that was it. It was law. Mm -hmm. And another thing I'd like to address on your show I'm hearing a lot of noise from people about Tony Accardo killing Sam Giancana. And I think your, your audience would like to hear this. Absolutely. And cut. I'm sorry. I was saying, absolutely. I, I don't particularly agree with that, but um, go ahead with your point there. Cause I'd love to hear it, but I don't particularly agree with that either. You're absolutely correct. Let me explain something to you. Did the order get the nod from Accardo? I'm sure. Did the order get denied from Iupa and Lombardo and maybe, maybe quite distantly, possibly Cerrone, meaning those were like the big guys at this time? Mm -hmm. Yes. But Joe Batters, Tony Accardo, walking from his house in River Forest or driving from River Forest to Oak Park to go in the side door and pop two rounds or three rounds or whatever it ended up being, Sam Giancana is about the likelihood of my dog turning. She's a Siberian Husky, okay? Or, I'm sorry, into a fucking gorilla. I mean, it's it's that ludicrous. Number one, 
the guy that made the silencers related to me. And this is where we'll get into the whole thing with the family secrets case. Um, I've heard guys say, oh, yeah, I drove by and I heard the shots the day they killed Giancana. Motherfucker, you must be Superman because they used a screen. Yeah. You know, it's just the stuff that people come out with, even on these podcasts, Wade. I had one guy, and I won't mention his name, got on one podcast. Oh, I've known Chucky for years. I never met him in my life. <laughs> and when I became active and I became a heavy where I was actually doing things I probably wish I wasn't doing, okay, this guy was getting ready to go hide because he was ratting people out. And the things that he did for the outfit at the time that he did them for, no disrespect, but he was shit on my shoes. I was an errand boy and a do boy. I'll be the first one to admit it. I, I was a soldier. At the time I came in, I did a lot of things for a lot of people. But what this guy did, and I wasn't way up on the totem pole in 86, 87, 88. That came later. This guy was shit under my shoes with the things that he did for the family. I wasn't even allowed to go near people like that because of my connections to Joe and my father's friends and uh, a guy named Igor that I ended up, when I went into the sheriff's department, um, it's not a secret now and you already know about it. Um, There was an indictment that came out in 1992, Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. versus Novelli. And, uh, I believe the case is 92 CR 363, if I remember right. Your people can look it up in the federal courts, Northern District of Illinois. This guy was selling our jobs, Wade. And when I went and asked to be a police officer, the alderman said, okay, I'm going to put you with my guy in the sheriff's office. Brought this guy in. I shit you not. They called him Igor. (laughs) He was hunched over. He had one eye that went that way, one eye that went straight and looked at you, and he kind of talked like this. I I was a young kid, stars in my eyes, and I'm looking at like, this guy's going to help me? <laughs> and he had a barber shop where he cut hair for a living, you know, as a, as a full-time job, and he was a part-time deputy sheriff. But he at that time, he was so close to the sheriff of Cook County he was the conduit between the alderman, the mob, and the sheriff. And the guy he had ran the entire merit board, which was the system under which you got your job. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna you're gonna get a laugh out of this. So I I you know get called in. Alderman says, you know, go talk to Igor and he'll he's gonna be your mentor. You're up under him now. It that was like being in a crew. Little did I know that Igor actually had a crew and very close to the Grand Avenue crew and very tied to the Elmwood Park crew. In fact, a member of it. Uh, He says, okay, kid, it's going to cost you $800. And I'm like, all right, so what do I do? He says, I'll tell you when and where to go. So me being naive and wet behind the ears, I go and I call my dad and I say, dad, what do I do? He says, Chucky, this is part of life. You know, I said, I don't have that kind of money. My dad borrowed me the money. 
He says, you go down there and you do whatever the fuck them people tell you to do. You keep your mouth shut. You're going to get your job. So I get the call. I get told to go down to the county building. I walk into this guy's office. It was a chief uh, chief inspector of the Cook County Sheriff's Merit Board. I get told to ask for a guy named Jack Novelli. Guy comes out, big guy, craggy voice. Come on with me, kid. I says, where are we going? He goes, we're going for a walk. We go for a walk down the hallway. There's a men's room there. Come on in the men's room with me. I'm like, I don't want the job that fucking much. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking in my mind, he says, let's, let's go. And he says, you bring that envelope for me. And I said, yes, sir. You go put it on that stall in there and I'll meet you back out in the hallway. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, thank God. You know? <laughs> so I put the money in there. I walked out. Guy walks out to me, pats me on the back, gives me a big hug, goes in his suit coat pocket. You remember? Well, you're probably too young, but do you remember Scantron test, uh, things Mm -mm. okay well your viewers probably will when in the 70s and 80s they were a strip of paper probably about about the size of a letter size envelope and you colored in the dots on it and that's how you took a test oh yeah 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 i know what you're talking about now he puts mine up on the wall he fills in all these dots he says come here kid sign your name there i sign my name he goes, congratulations. You just got a fucking 90 on the police exam. You're hired. <laughs> I never even looked at a police exam. And everything was fine. I ended up getting hired. And for some reason, they backdated my birth certificate. The guy was not the smartest card in the deck. To this day, we don't know why. But he backed me up a year forward instead of a year backward. Cause I wasn't allowed to take the test till I was 21. Uh, so he changed my date from 66 to 67 when he meant to change it to 65 and it, a big investigation ensued. Mm. And I didn't know no better. I mean, I kept my mouth shut initially. And then we found out that he was selling jobs to everybody. Him and the sheriff were selling jobs to everybody and anybody that had money. Wow. And the feds got wind of it. And I got pissed off because I had five people I sent to them and they all lost their jobs. Mm. And when the feds came to me, I told the truth. I said, yeah, this is what he was doing. He got greedy. You know, he was disrespecting people. And this is what leads into the family secrets case as well, because they talked to me about this in 1990. And I told them everything that they needed to know about what was going on with this and the, the criminality in politics in the sheriff's department. And they said in 1990, oh, there's nothing to this. You're full of shit. Two years later, in 92, they indicted and convicted him on a plea deal. And if you look at the reports of what I have, the reports from 1990, and if you look at what happened to him and what he was indicted for, I was applicant number four, an unindicted co-conspirator in the indictment. Wow. But the corrupt feds said I was full of shit. And that was what put me on my path to basically I became involved in debt collection, intimidation. Um, there was several people I had to, you know, 
deal with. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. And I went through my life basically because of Joe Lombardo. I wasn't one of the guys that sat at the social club and paid pinochle. I wasn't one of the guys that hung out on the street corners or ran there. What I did, I was isolated. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to make myself into something I'm not. But when I got the call, you weren't going to have too many more chances. Now, were you still law enforcement at this time? For a while, yeah. Okay. So before we get too far into that, I do want to backtrack for one second. Um, Sure. Just to make sure that a lot of our listeners understand, and like you said earlier, uh, Sam Giancana Momo, who is sometimes referred to, his reach, like you said, was massive. And he was eventually shot. That murder, I think, to this day is still unsolved. Um, like you said, there's been everybody seems to know who did it and, you know, heard it and, and everything else. There's nothing to been proven to that point. I know it's long since been rumored that, uh, what was it, Butch? What was his name? Butch Blasey. Butch Blasey, yeah, that, that he was the trigger man. I mean, that's still never been proven. Um, if you had to take a guess, would you agree with it being Butch? No. No? Okay. But he would have never done that. Yeah, I mean, I think oh, it probably had to be someone that he was close with, I would think, to be able to get in there and get in his kitchen because as it's been kind of documented, he was downstairs uh, cooking, I think it was dinner, but he was cooking like what, sausage and peppers or something like that? He was making sausage and peppers. And let me tell you something. The person that actually pulled that trigger, okay, whoever he or she may have been, was somebody that was very very close. I don't think that Butch wasn't somewhat complacent in it. I think he got told to go take a walk because you got to realize there was other caretakers upstairs in the upper part of the home. Right. Uh, I think not only that, and much like in the Seaford case, it was kind of funny. Sam had 24 hour surveillance on him from somebody at all times. But the day that this happened, there's no police law enforcement presence at all. Right. Okay. That That's suspicious in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Just like the data, the star witness in the case with uh, Danny Seifert, even though he's, you know, from what D- Joey and Danny or Joey and Nick told me that his dad denied protection. I got a star witness even back in the seventies. Even if this guy tells me, go fuck myself, I don't want you protecting me and he's my case i don't know too many federal prosecutors or fbi agents that aren't going to say okay well we can't be up his ass like we'd like to be but we're damn sure going to be down the block when this guy's getting ready to go to the grand jury in a day or two and this isn't a week or two or a month or two yeah you know very 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 close proximity if shit's on the floor it's gonna stink it's shit you know Mm -hmm. what i'm saying you can't change it and uh you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's, that's a long time been a, you know, I guess a, a big question of who took him out because Momo's reach, you know, at that time, you know, it had, you know, dwindled, I'd say a little bit, you know, I know he would, what was he moved to Mexico or something like that for a while. He and then was come in back. Mexico for a while. Yeah. And he come back. So, I mean, he still had his power. His name was still there, but I agree. It had to be somebody that was very close because Momo was no average guy. He wasn't going to let just any and everybody around him. I mean, he was a smart guy. He was a wise guy to every extent of the word. Um, so he wasn't just going to let any and everybody around him to give them that opportunity. Obviously somebody did, but you know, that that's that. If you think about it, the man was so smart. 
he was able to create and control Vegas, mm-hmm. create and control the presidency to put a man in the presidency. He wasn't a stupid man. Exactly. Um, it, whoever it was, was someone that he trusted. Right. And I, I want to make a little so- jump off a little tiny side road here. No, you're good. Because this has been, this is a thorn in my side personally. And it's also a thorn in Carl Mano's side, who is, to explain who Carl Mano is, Sam had three daughters. Um, Annette was his oldest daughter. Carl is Annette's third son. Um, And Frank Calabrese Jr., the rat that testified against his own father Mm -hmm. uh, because he robbed his grandmother and didn't want his father to find out robbed his own father, was a cokehead, and you name it, he did it, um, has been going around Chicago lately publicly giving interviews. I know who killed Sam Giancana. I want to say something publicly, and I this is the first time I'm speaking of it, so you're kind of getting an exclusive on your show. When I have a proffer agreement with the United States government when I cooperated in 2001, mm-hmm. and I'm not ashamed of the fact that I did. You know why. I've sent you that paperwork. We'll get into that. Um, When you sign one of those agreements, they are very strict in the fact that you tell them what you know to a certain degree, if it's a limited scope agreement, but when you lay waste to as many people as him and his uncle did, They bring you in a room for a day, a week, a month, whatever it is, and you bear your soul. Mm -hmm. So for this guy to be coming out here now saying, oh, I know who killed Sam Giancana and I'll never tell, or maybe someday I will. That's a lie because, and it's a lie for two reasons. One, had he done so? and the government knew about it, they would be under obligation to notify the family that the case was closed. I can guarantee you personally that has not happened. The second part of it is, if he withheld that information from the government, his proper agreement isn't worth the paper it's written on, and he should be re-indicted for everything that he did. Correct. So, Frank Calabrese, you're a fucking liar. (laughs) Yeah, that's what a lot of people I don't think understand is when you get these agreements, um, you basically, like you said, you have to bear your soul. You have to give all. Any information that you leave out, the least little bit, if it comes out that you hid something, you know, that whole thing, no matter what, you could have given them enough to get 15, 20, 10,000 indictments. It doesn't matter. If you hide that one thing and they find out about it, your whole agreement's void and you're up the river. So you're exactly right to your point is if he did, if he's, Truthfully saying he's withheld information and that proper agreement is voided. Yep. And it leaves you open for a lot. And the point is he's doing it for profiteering reasons with his little tour bus or hot dog stand or whatever it is he's trying to do. Does he have the minutest conception of Sam has five grandsons here in Chicago? Mm-hmm. He has three daughters. Does he not, is he that, how do I explain it? Heartless is the word I want. Yeah. 
to say something like that publicly and dangle a carrot in front of their face. Like these people haven't had the knowledge of knowing what really happened to someone that they dearly love. And that's another thing. Everybody thinks gangsters are murderers, killers, rape. Well, not rape because that's not allowed, but pillage, plunder, whatever. All these guys, Tony Accardo, Iupa, Cerrone, Sam, uh, down to your soldiers, we got families. We go home like you do, go to soccer games, have barbecues. It's Yes, the mob is there 24-7 for you, but we have what everybody else has, especially in Chicago. It's low-key. You can go all over the Internet now and see different pictures on these different mob blogs and stuff like this. A guy's sitting out in uh, uh, lawn chairs having cigarettes and stuff. It's not like 24 hours. Hey, who are we going to rob? Who are we going to murder? Who are we going to kill? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a just, lot of that's bullshit. Yeah, a lot of that's fabrication. Um, I think this is a good chance here to try to segue because you mentioned, you know, Sam was had a lot to do in Vegas. Um, for those that don't know and has never seen the movie Casino, which I'm sure everybody listening to this episode probably has seen the movie Casino. Um, the character in that movie, Nikki Santoro, was played by Joe Pesci. And he was kind of sent out there to Vegas to keep things in line, control the skim and things like that. That was based on a real character or real man, rather, uh, Tony Spilotro. Now you mentioned him earlier. Now, Tony was from Chicago. They sent him out there to Vegas and he pretty much ran that. Now the Teamsters fund, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the Teamsters fund was basically, you know, given the outfit, they built the casinos on that, but then in return, the outfit received the skim, much like you've seen in the movie. Is that correct? All right, so when all this started happening... The Teamsters were a piggy bank. Right. Uh, when all this started happening, uh, you know, Anthony is real... I'm going to use his real name, not the character of the movie name, but uh, Tony Spilotra, he was leaving a lot of bodies out there. Um, but before all this, you know, he was heavily involved in the Chicago outfit. He was a bookmaker. He was there for years. Now, there is, and we've talked about it earlier, the murder involving Danny Seifert. Why don't you real quick kind of give our listeners a little background on Danny Seifert and then explain that whole deal? Because that's a big point of contention with Joe Lombardo's involvement, um, you know, Tony Spilotra's involvement. Kind of give us a little background on Danny Seifert and then how that particular murder went down. And what's even crazier is now your relation to Joey Seifert, uh, you know, after all this is done. Here's, here's the gist of it. In 74, when this happened, my Uncle Tom was a wannabe soldier mm -hmm. he got a call one day he was babysitting me because my mother was working he was at he had worked at the time at the cook county forest preserve district and he had taken an injury he got a phone call early early in the morning and he said kid come on you got to come with me we got to do something he still had a cast on his leg i remember it's i don't remember the time if it was six o'clock in the morning seven o'clock and six thirty in the morning I'm helping him with a butcher knife, saw the fucking cast off of his leg so he can get in the car and drive to go do whatever it was, whoever called him at the house and said, get where you got to go. He grabs a blanket for me. We stop at a place called Gas City. He buys me a soda pop, some candy, pu puts me in the back of his car, throws it over. He said, you fucking stay down there and don't get up and don't say a word. Don't do nothing. Don't come out under that blanket until I tell you to. 
didn't know not didn't know then what I know now. We made one stop at a man's home named Richard Medea, who was a corrupt Chicago police officer. Weapons were picked up, and then a trip was made to Bensonville to the plastics factory. At that time, Frank Schweiz, Tony Spilatro, Richard Medea, my uncle Tom Schreiber, uh, John Fecarata were involved in the hit. According to the Family Secrets version, according to the Casino version, and according to other versions from many, many, many people, including the judge in the trial of the murder of this case, um, an eight-year-old boy couldn't possibly have been there. Um, I've done everything, but go, including up to and inclusive of going all the way to the Illinois Appellate Court to try to get heard. And there's a motion currently pending before a new judge because the judge that tried the case is retired mm -hmm. uh, to try to get me in to testify to something else involving Spilatro. But the team that went in, I cannot say one way or another from that day, going back in time, who was inside the building. I only personally know that Richard Medea and Thomas Schreiber were outside and that Medea was the one that I believe with my whole heart fired the shots in that killed Danny's dad or that killed Danny C for Joey's dad. Mm -hmm. I know we left there. I know my uncle had the shotguns afterwards. I know that there was other things that I cannot talk about right now in case I have to testify. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to taint my testimony Correct. that will corroborate me. I also know fast forward between 74 and 86 when Spilatro was executed, the two people that were, well, two people that were, there were, of the three people I know that were in there and possibly four, Joe Lombardo, I know, I know several things that are fact. If Joey Lombardo was there and I'm on, and Joey knows we split hairs on this. I'm not completely convinced that Joe Lombardo was there. Emma Seifert swears up and down that she recognized Lumpy's gait and his his demeanor with the mask on when they he put him in the bathroom. If he, in fact, did put Emma and Joey, which nobody had a clue Joey was going to be there, um, in the bathroom. He was supposed to be in school, right? Right. He, he played hooky that day. He faked like he was sick. Okay. Um, if Joe was there, he went there for one reason and one reason only to keep Emma alive. Right. Because Spilatro, Fecarata, and more so Schweiz did not leave witnesses behind. You're talking about John Fecarata, right? Killed every fucking. Yes. That's why Fecarata got killed, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, they would have killed every fucking thing in that building, including the cockroaches, if they could have. When the hit went bad because it was Tony's fault, Tony Spilatro's fault, they were supposed to handcuff. Danny, take him somewhere else, away from there to execute him. Fecarata and Joey would be better to tell you the story than me or or his documentary. Um, Danny was a pretty good boxer, and there was always a point of contention between Spilatro and Danny about who was kind of tougher and faster with the hands. Well, Spilatro was as small in stature and didn't have a long reach where Danny was really quick and really strong and had a long reach. And they used to jib each other about, you know, hey, Tony, why don't you come on down here and let Danny take, 
you know, you and Danny go a couple rounds and you know, that never obviously happened. Um, the day that it happened was the day that they tried to take Danny down and he got away from Fekirata and John Fekirata was a big guy. He got away from Schweiz. He got away from Spilatro and Spilatro ended up putting a bullet through Danny's cheek. Danny escaped out the door to where the backup team, which was Tom Schreiber and Rick Medea and maybe other people, and they executed him. I know because I heard it out of his mouth myself that Spilatro wanted to go in there and kill Emma and Joey. And there was a fight about that from 74 to 86, even when Joe Lombardo was in prison, Anthony Accardo about blew his top. I oopa. You could have peeled him off the ceiling. He was so fucking mad that that went down in front of a child. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's just not the way Chicago does things. But those guys, when you sent Schweiz, Spilatro, and Fekarat out to do something, there wasn't no turning them back. It was it. That's it. The switch is on. They're going. It's getting done. No matter what. Yeah. Those weren't guys to be trifled with one way or the other out there. No, because Anthony had a temper that would pop like this. And, you know, to, just like Joe Pesci played the role that the, he didn't portray the truth, but the role that he played of what they gave him to play, he nailed Spilatro. Right. So he nailed him, his attitude to a T. And then when Spilatro got in trouble, getting too big for his britches, saying he was going to kill his way to the top, you know. <laughs> You just don't say things like that when you're in the outfit. You could think it all you want. You don't say it. Right. And that's when him and Michael got hustled in and they went to Bensonville. They, the story the government has is a guy named James Marcello, who was the boss of Chicago at the time. He was the, was the one that made the phone call and brought him in. Mm-hmm. What the government never looked at because they wouldn't allow me to testify was the fact that the voice of James Marcello and the at that time voice of Richard Medea are very, very similar. And I know as sure as I'm sitting in this chair that it was Richard Medea that made that phone call and picked him up and drove them there because he was a Chicago police officer and he was a close friend of Tony's. And what transpired after that, I can't talk about right now because there is a motion in the court to try to help James uh, get another hearing on this. But what I can tell you, Casino did not go down anything like it really went down. Mm -hmm. They weren't. One guy last night I saw on, on, on the Internet had a guy in a suit and a tie like this in a hole with mud and dust all over them number one they didn't have any clothes on number two the bodies were perpendicular to one another and number three that's not what the crime scene looked like okay at all so people again don't know what they're talking about and they put themselves out there like their authorities and they're just making jackasses out of themselves yeah well nick calabrese another one that we mentioned earlier he claims to be at that hit i think is they put uh Fecarata there as well, I believe, um, according to the government. Nikki was there. Fecarata was there. Um, there was, put it this way, 
it was a consorted effort because Tony was so high up on the food chain. The one thing I agree with Red Wamet about is they wanted to spread the blame here. Like it wasn't just one person. It's very similar to when Gotti took out Castellano. Right. You know, everybody thinks, and let me ask you, and I mean, you're the interviewer, but I'm, I'm asking the interviewer a question. I mean, no disrespect. No, absolutely. Um, what's your take on why Castellano got killed? Well, I mean, I think it was quite a few different things. Um, the one being the most prevalent is I think if he got his hands on those tapes that had the Gotti's crew dealing drugs, um, I think they would have been executed. And I think John knew that. Um, another thing is a lot of people don't realize that it was kind of an embarrassing thing, but Paul was caught, I think, uh, having an affair with his maid at the time. And there was even accusations of him trying to get a surgery for like to fix his penis, I guess would be the best word to describe it. Um, so that was definitely (laughs) not a great look. Yeah. Fixed a piece of deal. Um, and then also, uh, Paul was also under indictment as well at the time. Um, so there was really no set w- what he was going to do, how he was going to react. Paul was not a street guy. He grew up in the mob, but he was more of the upper echelon. He, he dealt with the white collar side of it. John was more of the blue collar side. So I think everything was kind of stacked as you got a guy, you don't really know what's going to happen. He's already got some embarrassing stuff coming out. And you know, if he gets his hands on these set of tapes, it's admitting that your crew is dealing drugs, you're probably going to get clipped. So he knew that it was going to be him or Paul, and he made the decision to do what he did. Okay. Can I tell you something? Absolutely. You're, you're spot on. You're spot on looking at it from, and I think that's his picture behind you. Uh, that's actually uh, Robert De Niro from Goodfellas. De Niro. Okay. Um, you're spot on about Gotti's reasons, but do you know why the commission allowed it? Well, from what I understand, he didn't have full support, especially from what the Gigante side. Uh, but no, I know I'm not a hundred percent privy to why they allowed it. I mean, I think that I, I really don't know to be 100% honest. I'll give you the, I'll tell you the truth. There was an underboss under Don Carlo Gambino. In my opinion, the last of the true Dons of New York, you know, the honorable um, old timers that live by the old rules, Neil. you know, and, and lived and breathed and, and bled Omerta. His underboss was Neil Delacroche. Mm-hmm. Paul Castellano, once he became boss because he was related to Don Carlo, is the only reason he got that nod. Everybody right. knows that. When Neil died, the dirty rat piece of shit son of a bitch sent a flower arrangement and didn't attend Neil's funeral. Mm. That was his fate with the commission. Because no matter who you were in the outfit, to even to this day, I think you'd be very hard pressed to find anybody that has anything bad to say about Don Carlo. Right. Other than he was very stern, mm-hmm. very quietly stern about especially drugs. Right. Um, he was loved by everybody. And to snub him like that was the most disrespectful thing you could do. So when Gotti ended up in the predicament he was in 
and more so Sammy Gravano, who loved Neil to death. Neil brought him into the family, mm-hmm. asked, I want permission to do this. And it, that's why it got done. Yeah, Neil. That's why it got done with no repercussions. Yeah, Neil, to your point, was a stone cold gangster. I mean, if, if you look up gangster in the dictionary, there's a few people that's going to have their picture by there for sure. That's the embodiment, Tony Accardo being one, Carlo Gambino being one. And there's a, there's a quite a few, but definitely in that picture lineup, you're going to see Neil Delacroix in there somewhere. I mean, he was a gangster's gangster. Um, so I agree. He probably definitely should have been boss, but the, the type of gangster he was, he didn't go against that. When Don Carlos said he was making Big Paul the boss, he may not have liked it, but he wasn't about to buck it because that's not how things he, were done. He tried to back, and he tried to back Paul as good as he as good as he was allowed to, right? To advise him, you know, as consigliere. But you know, you can lead a horse to water. You know, when when they're a boss, you can't drown them in it. You can just kind of like shake your head and say, "Okay, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen." Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, to kind of get back to where we were, you know, Mikey and Tony were both killed. Um, they were found in that cornfield. Uh, well, was it a cornfield? No, it was in Indiana. It was a it was a cornfield on a farm in Enos, Indiana. It wasn't that close to didn't I Opa own some property up there or something that was fairly he close had a to hunting, that? He had a hunting lodge right across the street. Word has it that the area they really wanted to put him in had too many roots and stuff, and it was too hard of a dig. Uh, okay. So that's why it was kind of like on the fly. Hey, we're going here, and we're trying to prepare. They were, they were trying to prepare the hole, and they couldn't get it, and they knew that the body was on the way. So it was like, oh, fuck. Well, hey, that's soft dirt over there. It's a lot easier on our back. <laughs> and then all hell broke loose. Yeah, well, he kind of says that in the movie, alluding to you got to do it right. You got to have the hole already dug. He does say that in uh, Casino. but You know what you're doing, you know. <laughs> um, So that kind of covers the Seifert murder. You know, Tony had his role in that. Um, Eventually, like we said, Tony and his brother Mikey were both executed. There was just too much going on for them to, you know, stay out. They were already under, under indictment as well. Frank Collada had already agreed to testify, was probably going to put Tony in jail um, if he didn't get clipped. And, you know, who knows what would have happened with that. But kind of tell us how Family Secrets came to go to trial and then what you're doing, as you kind of mentioned earlier, trying to put some stuff to to rest right now currently even all these years later that they're still not wanting to hear what you're saying because as you said earlier you know it was long been said that marcella was the one that made that phone call they picked tony up because it had to be someone that he trusted tony at the same at the same token like we spoke earlier about momo was no dummy and it had to be someone but he that he trusted so if it wasn't marcella if it was the cop that you alluded to that would also make sense but no FBI or police force or whatever is going to want to put that out there to that to be heard that a Chicago police officer, FBI, whatever was involved in that. Well, if you research Richard Medea, before I get into it from 19, he came on the job in the mid sixties from the day he came on the job. This guy was under investigation for one thing or another. Okay. 
Uh, he ended up in, in 74. He beat up a guy, or 74, 75. No, I'm sorry, 69. He beat up a guy named Sixto Cruz, S-I-X-T-O Cruz. Um, you can read the article in the Chicago Sun-Times or Tribune Archive. Um, then again, he got in trouble in the 70s for uh, beating someone else up, pistol whipping them and stuff like this. And then in the 80s, his home was raided and uh, drugs were found. 15 silencers, which, by the way, carry 10 years per silencer mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Then this guy, Medea, all of a sudden, he's not doing 150 years. He's doing less than four. Now, today, there's no you could look his case up under Pacer put his name in the federal database. You can't find him anywhere except on the Bureau of Prisons. You can look up his BOP number to verify that he was in federal custody. Um, So you tell me somebody that's got all that weight sitting on them and cuts a deal supposedly, which it's not really a secret. And even Joe Seifert will tell you he's verified this through his own independent sources outside of me. Um, that obviously Medea had to give a hell of a lot up. And uh, that's what we lead into family secrets with. It's no secret I've been to prison. Um, I went through a very bad divorce in 1995 and 96. Um, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it. All I'm going to say is I had an adulterous wife. She came home pregnant with another man's child. When I tried to pay the guy off to keep rights to the kid, he was a Latin King gangbanger that told me basically go fuck myself. I got HIV and hepatitis maids and everything else. And we had to abort the child. Um, For a while I went off the rails and my insurance wouldn't cover it. And I wrote a bunch of bad checks, stopped doing contracts in my construction business and kind of lost my mind for about a good year. And one thing led to another, and that man's not here anymore. Um, I was, uh, the charges were gone. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I followed the kids down to another state where they're living, which I don't want to mention. And I tried to, you know, get custody of my kids. And I opened up a very large nightclub, family backing. And I got turned in. Hey, my ex-husband's involved in organized crime. Um, You need to watch them. They figured out who I was, who I was related to. One thing led to another. I got accused of bilking investors. And basically, it was a deal where the guy I bought the property from screwed us because he tried to sell it to me for $1.5 million when he owed $2.1. And he couldn't give me a clear title. So we folded the business and walked away. Well, when you fold a business like that, everybody's pissed off because contracts, people got fired, payroll didn't get made, uh, you know, in, in the middle of building something or, or having it opened. And then, you know, you walk in and tomorrow you don't have a job because, well, if we couldn't buy the property, it was worthless. And all my investors pulled out on me and left me hanging with the bag, which was not a good position to be in. Right. So I ended up going to trial got found guilty from a redneck jury, no offense to you Southerners. (laughs) And, uh, 
I uh, basically, because of who I was, the judge, there was a motion of eliminate filed where they couldn't talk about organized crime because there was no evidence that organized crime was involved in my case. The state's attorney asked who all my investors were, and there was one particular investor that had a very infamous last name. And I knew that this person had given me money. And I got put in a position where the state said, hey, who are, name all your investors and what they gave you. And I looked at my lawyer and this piece of shit sat there like, you know, and it was like the longest 30 seconds of my life. Finally, he got his lazy ass up and he tells the judge, oh, I think I know what the problem is here, your honor. Can we have a sidebar? And they had a little conversation up at the bench and I, I'm sitting right there. So I'm hearing it. This crooked judge down there says, I'll allow one question along these lines, make it good. So he made it good. And I had to admit that there was one person with a very infamous last name had lent me money to open the club. Well, the minute I mentioned that name, they convicted me in 24 minutes. Mm. And because I wouldn't cooperate when I originally got the case and accept time served, and testify against a bunch of people. I told them to go fuck themselves. Uh, the state attorney down there and the sheriff said, we will give you 30 years. One thing that I will sit here and say today is that man is a man of his word, 150%. They gave me a 30-year split sentence. They gave me 10 in, 10 out, 10 suspended. I did my first 10. I came home. They found a reason to violate me, sent me back for the next 10. And... All during this time, I was fighting my case, and now we get into family secrets. I'm sitting in jail, and I'm approached by an, F an ATF agent concerning something totally unrelated to family secrets, and I respect this man so much. Um, I know he's an honest agent. I know you've had a couple guys on your show, uh, I think Jay Dobbins and mm -hmm. some other people. I have so much respect for the ATF because they tried to make the case. Um, John Rotuno and his partner came and met with me in Florida, investigated me up one side, down the other, you name it, looked into things much like with you, uh, produced, I produced documents and independent corroboration, which you have a letter of from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was independently corroborated in over 40 incidents of arsons, bombing, extortion, intimidation, murder, you name it. Uh, and they turned around and said, okay, we're going to go to Chicago and we're going to unearth these bodies. When we got here, keep in mind, the same prosecutor that prosecuted Richard Medea in 1980 for his case told my ATF agents and my U.S. attorney that I was working with, because now he was the chief of organized crime, I was full of shit that Richard Medea and Tom Schreiber and all these other people that I was discussing with my ATF agents, I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. I was a liar. So at the time, we didn't know a, what was going on with Medea because it was so well buried. And B, we didn't know about what was going on with Calabrese. Well, the one body that they wanted to unearth with me 
was a guy named Michael Alberto. And he had several nicknames. One was Bones, one was Hambone. Uh, there was a couple others I won't repeat because there's going to be ladies listening to this, uh, but they weren't very laudatory. And when we were out there doing this ridiculous dig and the ATF has to wear this, they went out there with fucking garden tools to do an excavation in the rain. No, they brought in a forensic scientist from Indiana uh, or a forensic anthropologist and I, the dogs hit on an area, Agent, the agents called in for a crime scene, and Mars said, shut it down, get Maselli out of there. So Mitchell Mars, who is now dead, and happens to be a very close friend from what I hear to Red, Red Wimet, mm-hmm. I'm not knocking Mitch as a man at home with his family, whatever. As a prosecutor, he was corrupt as fuck. <laughs> Period. So between 2001 and 2005 i get literally castigated in the media i'm a con man i'm a liar i'm full of shit i sent him on a wild goose chase and then one day i'm in way 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 southern florida doing my time and i get a newspaper that joe lombardo's been indicted for the murder of hambone and the Spalatro murder with uh, Marcello and all this other stuff. And I look at this and I, Joe's on the run. Now you got to keep in mind that Joe wrote a letter to the court telling the judge, he was afraid to come in because the feds could indict a fucking hamburger and get away with it. Yeah. And he wanted separation from everybody else. And he wanted some conditions for a fair trial. So Joe's on the run. I read his letter in the papers and I said, I have a debt of honor to this man to tell the truth. No matter what it costs me, I have to do this. I wrote a letter, which was published and it was in the Sun-Times newspaper to Judge Zagel saying, hey, uh, y'all fucked up. You got this wrong. You need to talk to me. From 2005 to 2007, well, let me back up a little bit. At that point in 2005, Joe's first attorney, Richard Halperin, who, by the way, blew his brains out, um, his own brains out, um, filed an oral motion to get me an attorney and bring me before the court. The judge denied it and said, oh, for reasons stated in open court, I'm denying this. Charles Maselli is not credible. But yet people that were at the trial, like Scott Bernstein, who's uh, does the gangster report mm-hmm. and uh, OG podcast, Joey Seifert, Nick Seifert. Nobody seems to fucking remember this taking place. So now we go forward. I keep going after the court and filing what I can and using my legal education that I have to try to get in there and a motion to intervene. Finally, I must have aggravated Zagel enough. He issues an order. I think it was in 06 or 07. Give me an evidentiary affidavit, Chuck, of what you'll bring to this case. I get the order. I'm elated. Wade, I'm like, this is a no-brainer. Not only will I write you an evidentiary affidavit, I'm going to send you a fucking map, which I did. You know what he did with it? He took it, sealed the file, never let anybody sealed it, never issued a ruling on the motion, Never denied it, 
never never did nothing suppress the evidence like this is bullshit it don't count put it to the side i will challenge anybody to go from zero to 1662 and the, the things filed in the family secrets case you will not find an order other than sealing that motion that was filed takes these guys to trial convicts them with a witness willing to come forward. Keep in mind, at the time I wrote this, I came home in 2008 for a short period of time because I had a 10-year 10 10 suspended and a 10-year probation sentence. They could have brought me before a grand jury, and if they thought I was lying or thought they could prove I was lying, they could have extended my time indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at coming out of prison within a year or so taking that risk. Then I get out, I get a probation violation, which I honestly believe they targeted me for this reason. I do my other 10 years and all during that 10 years I fight. They don't want to hear me. None of these high dollar lawyers that got paid all this money to represent these clients ever told many of their clients even about me when each and every one of them got copies of everything I filed. So Fast forwarding now to when Joe passes away, I have been personally, and I'm not going to get into it, but I'm going through some personal stuff and I wasn't doing, I wasn't in a really good frame of mind in November. Mm-hmm. I was honestly thinking of taking my life. You're talking this past November. Pardon me? You're talking this past this, November? In 21. Yes. In 2021. Um, going through some very, very serious things, part of which is caused from family secrets and being blackballed for so many years. My mother was very sick and dying. And I had talked to Joe Seifert probably about a year after I got out and he wanted to talk to me. And I said, Joe, I'm not ready to talk about this to anybody. Then in the interim of that, Joe Lombardo passed away. And I was at the point where I just felt like I didn't have a reason to live. It was a personal thing. And I picked up the phone and I said, I want nothing from you. I don't know you. I didn't know Joey did podcasts. I didn't know he wrote a book. I didn't know he did a movie. I didn't know nothing. I just knew him as Danny's kid. Mm -hmm. And I gave him my word that someday I would tell him the truth. And Joey and I, much like you and I, I sent him all the paperwork. We talked. I told Joey things that even Joey will tell you nobody else could have known that wasn't there that day or that didn't know Joe Lombardo very, very well. And that's when Joe said, Chuck, you really need to write a book, do a documentary, do a docuseries, and get this story out. My mother passed away a month later from COVID and COPD. If it wasn't for people that I hold very near and dear to my heart, um, Carl Mano being one, Christine Champagne being another, um, and a very scant list of other people out of the long list of people I know all my life that, Basically, when I started having a hard time or my mom got very sick, they all ran like hell. I um, 
I said, okay, I got a reason to hold on for a while. And I laid my motor to rest December 27th. And I've been keeping myself going. As you know, I said, I've had some major health problems. And I got a phone call. And someone asked me, hey, Chuck, can we ask you a question? I said, sure. They said, we know why you were so adamant about helping Joey. Not only that it was the truth and that you had a lot of love for him, you know, but why not help Jim, Jim Marcello? We know, you know, because you're talking about Medea, what really happened that day in Bensonville. And I can't say why I know so well, because I don't want to taint my testimony, but I know. I know as sure as I'm looking at you and you got a black beard and mustache. And I said, okay, I'll give it one more chance. So in March, I constructed a 40 page plus motion with exhibits. I reached out to his current attorney who had a 27 minute conversation with me, sent him some documents. A couple of days later, he said, don't ever contact me again. While we were having that conversation, I had mentioned about my credibility with Novelli and all that. And this attorney had the nerve to say, well, you know, I was close personal friends with Novelli and I really don't like what you did. So I can understand why this attorney has an ax to grind with me. I've been threatened with everything under the sun since I came out that I was going to help James. Filed it. Um, it was docketed under 1661, which you've got a copy of. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. And for over a month, I've been waiting for a ruling. Again, nothing. So I called the office of the clerk the other day, and I talked to a very nice person, and they said, we don't have it. I said, what do you mean you don't have it? It's on the internet. It's filed. She goes, we don't have it. But we have it now because I went and got it. And it is on the judge's desk. And I said, well, could I ask you a question, ma'am, please, with respect? Would it help or would it be allowed if I wrote a letter to the judge? So him not knowing all the history with me, and I don't expect the judge, as busy as they are, to read back through 20 some odd years of Chuck Maselli harassing the courts to a degree. Could I put a little synopsis together? So the judge doesn't think I'm some kind of lunatic, you know, and takes this seriously. Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely. And over this past weekend, that was mailed to the courts uh, to the attention of Judge Blakey. And I anticipate by the end of this week that it'll be filed into the record. And I was told to call back to make sure it reaches his desk. And that's kind of where we're at. Well, hopefully that gets there because, I mean, at this point, Joe Lombardo obviously has, you know, long since passed away. So there's really nothing that you can do to say, help get him out of this. Um, obviously, you know, you have the information that could help out, you know, James Marcello. Uh, it's just a matter. I think of what it boils down to. And you and I have had this discussion privately of what they're willing to bring to light. You know, a lot of times when things happen, especially things involving law enforcement, they don't like to put it on display that either they were wrong, they made a mistake, or maybe that one of their own was involved in something they shouldn't have been. Um, that is a, a big no, no. 
as I'm sure you're aware of. Wade, do you know how monumental this would be? Very. The actual, some of the actual murders that were committed weren't committed by the big name guys with big deep pockets. Okay. I.e. the Spilatro murders. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to throw something out there. Explain something to me. And this is another part of my testimony. I have to be careful with because I don't know if they're ever going to really ask me this under oath or not. Even the glorified informants, Nick and Frank Calabrese Jr. And I've left Jr. out of here a lot. And I apologize to Sr. God rest his soul. No offense, Frank. Um, Everybody said John DeFranzo had his hands very deep in this and it was never indicted. Well, DeFranzo was gone now. Do you understand how many millions of dollars in assets that they took from Diane Samino Calabrese? Before she passed away, Frank's mother, they threw her out of the home she'd been in her whole life when they seized it. The monies that they have taken away from the Spilatro estate, I don't know what was there, but I know that there's been restitution orders where monies have been collected and paid out. So think about it. And it's so simple and so small. If they would have done it anywhere between 05 and the end of the trial. Okay, Maselli's saying all this. We go dig a hole and either we bring Alberto up or we don't. Now, you got Nick Calabrese over here. Oh, yeah, we buried him at 35th and Shields in a parking lot or whatever. Wait, they dug the whole fucking thing up. They didn't find nothing but dog bones. And that's their star fucking witness. I'm begging them to go dig up a fucking forest preserve. And they don't want to go do it the right way. But the difference is they got the convictions. Reaped in all this money, all this glory. People got promoted. People got time on TV. The big newspapers all picked it up. Everybody's glorified. While these guys, I'm not going to sit here and bullshit you. Not one of them was fucking St. Peter. Right. Oh, absolutely. But under the laws of our country, there's a reason that the scales of justice, the woman that's on there, has a blindfold on. You're not supposed to see race, creed, color, wealth. You look at the crime, the evidence for the crime, the witnesses for the crime and the facts of the crime. Nothing else should matter. I could be the nicest guy in the world or the biggest jag off on the face of the earth. When I walk in that courtroom and I go before that jury, the facts and those things are the only thing that should be weighed. Not who I am, what I've done. Look at all these fucking diddlers and pedophiles. They go in there. Oh, get a slap on the wrist because he's this or he's that. But some poor guy that stole the loaf of bread to feed his family because he's got a gang tattoo on him. They give him 25 fucking years. Explain that one to me. No, that's, that's been a big thing that we've been trying to bring light to is how they can throw those types of charges on people that do not deserve it. And like you said, deservedly. So at the same time, not put the charges on people that deserve to probably never see the light of day. They come up with, like you said, some fucking excuse of why they are the way they are. And 
It, just, it that shit just gets me irritated as hell. <laughs> Wait, Wade, you're so correct. You know, I did 20 years in prison plus. Okay. I seen it all. I walked the open compound as a cop, as a witness, and maybe in another show we could talk about the Pamela Strauss case, mm -hmm. but as a former witness, as a cop, as somebody that everybody on the compound knew what I was doing for Joe. So it wasn't like a secret that I was trying to testify in protective custody, out of protective custody, these fucking child molesters that it's not like, Oh, the girlfriend got mad and said, uh, Hey, did this to little Johnny or little Susie? There's DNA evidence. There's witnesses. There's confessions. Do you know they get mod coddled more in the prisons and they get more rights and privileges than a guy that did a, a theft or a white collar crime? You know, I, I've got friends of mine that are that I know from, you know, I've there's a couple things I can't talk about, but there's a special protective custody unit mm -hmm. in one location I was at in Florida. I did time with John Connolly. Do you know who he is? Yeah, he's connected with Whitey Bulger. He was the guy that was feeding all the information to. Right. Mr. Connolly and a guy named Mikey Flynn, who was part of the Cocaine Cowboys, he was a Miami yeah. uh, Miami Metro-Dade police officer, mm -hmm. were my personal friends. We used to sit and have breakfast every morning together and shoot the shit, cop talk, and we were friends because we were all cops. Right. You know, and I know more about Whitey than I even want to talk about. But I'll tell you something. We'd sit there and we'd look around the room and we'd wonder why a guy that took a baby and put a baby in a fucking microwave is given protective custody. And then this guy comes in six foot tall, all roided up from being in prison all of his life. And he wants to run the protective custody pod where guys like, you know, us cops or former politicians or you know, that, you know, stole money or whatever or at, or like Mr. Conley was, or Mikey Flynn or myself, not saying that we're any less, you know, less, but you can commit the most heinous crime there is on the planet and the fucking system will fucking rock you in its arms like a fucking baby. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you explain that to me? You you can't, you cannot explain it. And it's, it's, it's mind boggling. That's works. I've talked to a few people that's done major stints in prison. One being, uh, guy by the name of Ciro DiPaggio. And he said that same thing. He'd done like 19 years. And he was like, believe me. He said, if these guys, if the opportunity presented itself, he said they would all do what they had to do. But he said, the second they come in, they're carted off to protective custody. And as you can't get their hands on them and they're in there with, basically they can sit around with other guys that do the same shit so they can swap stories and, and fucking fantasies and oh. whatever else these sick fucks do. Oh, you wouldn't believe the things I've seen in 20 years. But here's this is to my point. Joe Lombardo, Mike Marcello are sitting in underground or semi-underground ADX Florence, Colorado. McVeigh, mm -hmm. uh, Ramsey Youssef, Rockman, all these people that were a danger to the entire world if they have communications. You want to tell me how you justify, I mean, I, I, I agree if you threaten a federal judge or U.S. attorney, it happens every day that these gangbangers go out there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I do not condone very clearly 
harming anybody in law enforcement. I never, I was an officer myself. As long as the cop's doing his job clean and he's not planting dope and drugs and guns and stuff like that, I have nothing but respect for police officers, firefighters, paramedics, doctors, you know, I don't think lawyers, they're all whores, but, you know, but, you know, a federal judge. But here's my point. What is an 80-year-old guy possibly going to fucking do that warrants putting him in ADX Florence? Yeah. That was in the mob. That one's always kind of got me, too, because like you said, you know, that was houses like, you know, Ramsey Youssef, who was responsible for the first uh, Twin Tower bombing. Uh, the one that went off in the basement and didn't cause nowhere near yeah. the amount of destruction that the, the planes did later. Um, you know, Timothy McVeigh, I think uh, TD Bingham may have been in there too. He led the Aryan brotherhood along with Barry Mills. Um, you're talking yeah. top notch guys, leaders of organizations that, you know, I'm not going to say where anybody deserves to be. It's not my place, but he didn't fit the mold of other guys that were there. I'll put it like that. Yeah, you know, and I know this is going to sound shitty coming from me, especially, but if he was alive, I could see a Sam Giancana going there. Because if a man can make a president right. and control the things that Momo controlled, I could see a justification. What they're doing to these, what they're doing to Marcello and they did to Joe was just punitive. And I'm going to, and I'm going to go one step further on the record. Do you know? that Zagel didn't even have the legal right to do what he did because a judge, let's just take a hypothetical. Say you got mad at a judge and you were in court and you said, judge, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, P, D, Q to you. Okay. That judge at that point, if they charge you or they're going to do any type of punishment against you has to recuse himself or herself cannot be the one to order to send you there Mm -hmm. cannot be a part in the decisions of whether you stay there because it's a, it's no way to be impartial. Yes. It's a a conflict of interest at that point. If you've been threatened because whatever sentence you make could be, you know, compared to, Oh, he said he was going to do this. Well, I'm going to do this. So yeah, you're absolutely right. They would have had to excuse yourself. Someone else would have had to come in and make an impartial decision on where those guys are going to go to spend their time incarcerated. And that never happened with Joe Lombardo. When Joe Lombardo's attorney, David Bernstein, who wrote a letter for me, which you have, by the way, mm-hmm. um, wanted was trying to get Joe out of there, you know, and, and back to a, a hospital. Zagel was still make Judge Zagel was still making the rulings. How do you do that? You you're putting him in there saying that you're going to kill me and I'm going to give you a fair fucking ruling. Come on. I mean, I mean, it's so fucking ridiculous. It's not even laughable. It's pathetic. Yeah. I'd like to see them. I'd like to see them go on your podcast or one of your, your, your guests. That's an ATF agent or a, an FBI agent or a former judge in, or a lawyer like Paul Whitcomb, who's my friend through Joe Seifert. Have somebody on there like that. Paul was a, a law clerk for judge Plunkett, uh, during, uh, one of the trials of Sam Carlisi and Paul and I talk all the time. And I asked Paul and he says, Chuck, you know what? I've been practicing law a long time. You're not wrong. You're dead. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, speaking of people that practice in law, it was a little sidebar that I I found when I was researching, you know, a few things to talk about. Uh, 
Tony Spilatra had a nephew uh, that was also a lawyer, and he actually defended Rocco Lombardo on a case who was obviously Joey Lombardo's brother. Um, I wasn't aware that uh, he had a family member that was a lawyer. There's, I don't think that's really anything that's been too much put in the forefront of things. I think that was something that was kept low key. Okay. I don't know him. Um, I think I think a lot of people. It, I can I won't say who, but there was a very high level person in organized crime, like top shelf, whose daughter became an assistant state's attorney in Cook County. Wow! And I mean, he was like in the top two, mm. and I, I won't mention her name, but you know, she got married and of course went on with her career and she had a very long career in the Cook County state's attorney's office and is a very successful attorney. Um, yeah. Well, look at what they're doing to Ocardo's grandson all the time. The football player. Mm-hmm. This kid is a amazing athlete scholar and everything else. And it's all oh, Tony Ocardo's great, 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 or great, great grandson. <laughs> I mean, you know, not that Tony was a bad guy. I, I I'd be afraid to tackle the motherfucker. Somebody might clip me, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would. I'd probably let him get by me too. That'd be an arm tackle for sure. <laughs> Don't want to be the guy to put a stop to his running the the ball. <laughs> um, Chuck, man, I've I've yeah, had a blast yeah. on this show having you on and and getting a lot of this stuff out to light. Um, you know, because there's been a lot of people that talk a lot. Uh you know, about certain things I've always found it's better when you can go straight to the source, get people that were there, get people that, you know, knew these people and not somebody that states away that's going off what they think they heard or think they saw or think they know. I mean, look, you know, I'm 38 years old. I don't know anybody that can see fucking five states away. It's, it's not going to happen. So I go straight to the source. I talk with who it is. Um, now, a guy that we've mentioned a few times in here, he's been a guest on our show when we first started out, is Red Wilmette. Now, he was involved in a little bit of, of what we've discussed here today. Not to maybe the extent that you were, but you guys kind of had different paths almost. And we've talked about this. You know, you were kind of first coming. When you were first coming in and making your way, he was kind of making his way out. So yeah, probably not a... Yeah, not a lot of intermingling between you two, but, you know, he's got his version of events and you've got yours. And at some point, if you're okay with it, I'd like to get both you guys on the show and we can kind of discuss this. And I think it would be I, a. I would love to do And Red, I would love, I have respect for your age. Mm-hmm. I have respect for you as a person, as my elder. I would love to do a show with Red. But the one thing that I would, like I told you, you know, privately when we spoke, um, I'm going to call him if he says something that's not true. And he's welcome to call me on it. And while I'm mentioning that, any of the documents that I gave you, I don't know how you air your podcast, be free to post them. Okay, I was going to ask you about that, if if those were kind of something to be kept, you know, between you and I. Um, but if, if you're no. okay with it, yes, yeah, it's I, all I public put... record now, you know, okay. anything that's going to prove to your audience, the truth, I'm all about the truth. And if you ever get any questions or feedback on it, I'll be more than glad to come on anytime, you know, that I can and, you know, answer anybody's questions. I, my life is an open book. I, all I want to do is clear my name, tell the truth 
and try to do what I think is right and hold the people accountable that need to be held accountable. And I know Red did a lot of good in what he tried to do, but I also know that he did it for personal reasons and he shouldn't sugarcoat that. If I can come on here and air what my relationship was to Joe and how I fucked up and how I made the mistakes, nobody put me in prison, but me, Mm -hmm. nobody made the bad decisions I made, but me, nobody put a gun in my hand, but me, nobody, um, made me launder money, but me. Okay. Um, I was never extorted because I just wouldn't tolerate that. But, you know, Red should be man enough to say, hey, I got myself into this and into that and not try to, like, glorify it like I'm some Billy badass. He was getting put down on. They were using him like a pimp. And, you know, he got tired of it and decided to do something about it. I'm not taking anything away from that. It took brass balls to do what he did at the time that he did it, wiring up his apartment. But the only reason that he did it is because he got tired of I'm fucking him in the ass. I mean, it's just that's just the way it was. I did what I did because I was betrayed by people. Mm-hmm. I I did stuff that's involved with the Spilatro case um, because there's one person that may end up being indicted that I can't mention his name right now that ended up owning a restaurant that Michael and Anthony owned called the Hoagie's Pub afterwards. And this guy is a corrupt politician. I have a lot of evidence on him. I would love nothing better than to put him away because he betrayed my loyalty after being loyal to him for many, many years. It's a personal ax to grind. Am I going to go wipe out the entire hierarchy of the Chicago mob or every Tom, Dick and Harry because I'm paying somebody 500 bucks a week and I'm mad about it? No, I'm not. Man up. Hey, I did it because I got tired of paying out. You know, it's not like they did something personal to him or he had some glorified reason for, oh, I became a federal witness because I wanted to bring peace and love and joy to the earth. He did it because he did it. And you can't glorify that. And I did what I did for reasons I did it for. And that's why I don't hide it. I'm not I'm ashamed of some of the things I did, but I'm not ashamed of why I did them. Mm -hmm. And I'll never be ashamed of the reasons that I cooperated with the government when I did. And I would love to do a show with you about a case involving Pamela Strauss in the near future, because it needs to be told. Absolutely. Uh, For sure. We can do that. And then we'll try to line something up with you and red and you guys can, you know, stay both state your cases and give him a chance to defend himself. And then you as well, Uh, before we get out of here, you had mentioned that you were writing a book. Now, is this something that's coming? Is it already out or it's going to be out soon? No, we're working on it. We're in the fledgling stages of it. Um, I was working with some people and I wasn't very pleased with them. So I changed it. Okay. And now I'm working uh, actually with Scott Bernstein and some of his people. Okay. And I can't really disclose what's going on, but there, there's something big. There's something very big coming down the pike. Okay. And I, you know, as you well know, it's, it's a process. Oh yeah. But, uh, my story is kind of like expansive because it's got like all these little tentacles. There will be one book coming out called dead witnesses. Don't testify. That'll be the Pamela Strauss story. Um, no, I didn't murder a woman. This is something totally unrelated. Um, and then there's going to be a, a, something I'm doing with Joey Seifert uh, about Joe Lombardo and, you know, 
if you want to see things and hear more about what I've done, they can go on Joey's Social Club on YouTube or any of the channels like you have or contact Joey Seifert or Scott Bernstein at uh, Gangsta, uh, original, is it original, original Gangsta, Gangsta Podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've just done one. In fact, I'm going to be Scott's first live one on video. We've got some technical problems, but I'll be his first live video podcast, and that's coming out soon. Wow. The audio is out, but the actual live video is coming out soon, too. Okay. Yeah, I think I heard that one with you. I mean, Scott's a very knowledgeable guy, um, one of the top in the field at what he does. And, you know, he's a lot, he's able to get a lot more facts than most people because he's been in this, you know, for such a long time. Um, and I've, he's actually came on this podcast as well. It hasn't aired yet, but we've done a, a deep dive into the Philadelphia mob, which he helped write the book on. Um, you know, the thing is mafia prints. I think it was, um, so it, that's a good one that we're going to look forward to dropping here soon. Scott's a great guy. So I look forward to anything that you guys uh, have coming out for sure. I mean, keep me, you know, informed on the situation when things drop and I'll definitely, uh, you know, we can bring you back on the show and, and plug that and go over anything else you want to do. Uh, but and I'm the same with you and I'll try, I won't make a promise, but I'll try to do something. I'll see if I can get my, my good friend, Carl Mano to come on for you and talk about his grandfather a little bit. Absolutely. That would be, uh, you know, a pleasure to have him on. I've, I've seen a few podcasts, you know, with you two together. I think it was Tony oceans, uh, podcast that you did. Yeah. So yeah, if he would come on, man, I'd be more than happy to have him on. Um, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on here, man. I appreciate when people take the time to come out here and, you know, set the record straight on a few things and give me their time and, and tell their story on this platform. I know our audience will enjoy it. Uh, in closing, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with, or you think we're pretty good right now? I think we're pretty good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you, Wade, and God bless. Same to you. Well, that about does it, folks. I am Hollywood Wade. That was Chuck Maselli. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Well, boy, oh, boy, what an interesting episode that was with Mr. Maselli here on Crime and Entertainment. Now, you know, I said earlier before we got into it, that there was a guy that we've had on the show a few times by the name of Red Wilmette. Now, Red and Chuck have some difference of opinion on some things, the way certain things went down, the way certain people handled certain things, maybe who was responsible for certain things. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're actually, this episode will be released on Sunday, May the 1st. Uh, so we're actually going to release a special edition where Chuck and Red go head-to-head on crime and entertainment And we're going to have that for you guys on Wednesday. Okay, so go ahead and listen to Chuck's episode on our show. We'll give you Sunday, Monday, Tuesday to go ahead and knock that out. Maybe even Wednesday. And then Wednesday night, we're going to release Chuck and Red going head-to-head here on Crime and Entertainment about what they believe to be true that happened back in the day in Chicago, especially all things involving around the Family Secrets trial, involving Joey Lombardo, maybe even get into the hit of Anthony Spilotro, who, if anybody has seen the movie Casino, that was the character that Joe Pesci was portraying, Tony the Ant, also his brother Michael. Those two individuals were killed and left in a cornfield out in Indiana. So this could be good, folks. We could get a lot of good information here. Um, And both of these guys are gentlemen. I've spoken with both of them. They have differences of opinion, and, you know, sometimes that's a good thing. It can lead for a good, healthy debate 
Maybe something can come out of it and can get cleared up. Maybe they'll both walk away thinking that, you know, what they think is the correct way. Who knows? But you're going to have to tune in to find out here on Crime and Entertainment. It will be coming at you, like I said, Wednesday this week. Special edition because we typically don't drop episodes during the middle of the week. So go on over to YouTube, like and subscribe on the YouTube. Go ahead and hit that notification bell. That way you get notified when we do drop things in the middle of the week like this right here because it's not typical for crime and entertainment. Every now and again, we'll drop something during the middle of the week, but we're typically a one show a week deal. Now, head on over to the Facebook. You can like us on Facebook, share our stuff if it comes out there, if you're so inclined to do and on instagram you can follow us on instagram as well we also are on the tiktoks if you're into that sort of thing we put out our clips from the interviews on there so you guys can go take a peek if it looks like something that might pique your interest you can head on over and follow us um spotify we're on spotify we're on apple Podcasts. we're on the stitcher app i tell people you know look into the stitcher app especially if you're into podcasts that particular app, you don't need a subscription for anything, okay? So it's a lot of other podcasts on there, a lot of great podcasts. Obviously, let Crime and Entertainment be the first one you put on there in your favorite shows, and you can go back and listen from number one all the way to this one. But you can get many, many, many other podcasts on there as well, and you do not need a subscription to use that app. Again, that is the Stitcher app. And folks, we certainly appreciate all the good feedback. We have surpassed 50,000 downloads, man. I tell you what, that was a a milestone for me, and I'm glad we hit it. And it's all thanks to you guys for listening each and every week. I thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart. And I'm going to kind of keep pumping good content for you. So just stay listening, stay liking, share it, tell a friend, and please, please follow every week. Thank you, guys. I am Hollywood Wade, and unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment.